His name is the name above all names. He is the one who is above all of your circumstances. He is the one who is bigger than anything that you face today. The question today will be, who do we trust? And am I, am I trusting in my own abilities or am I trusting in my life in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus? Let's start in prayer today. Heavenly Father God, yours is the name above all names. You, God, are the creator of all things. You are the, the God of heaven and earth. You are the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You are the holders of our past and our present and our future. You and in you are all things, and you are the giver of all good things. And Father God, I pray that you would forgive me where, where I take credit, that you would forgive me where I desire to rule my life that you would forgive me of the inclination in my heart to take charge, to, to, to be the one that is praised, to be the one that, um, that takes your credit. And Father, I pray that you would create in me a pure heart, that you would, would tune my heart to your ways, that you would write in me all the things that are wrong on my own and outside of you, and that you would place my feet again on the path of righteousness, the path that leads to your love and your eternal promises. We pray these in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This past uh, Wednesday night, we just finished a semester of Roots on Wednesday nights here at Nineveh. Now, I usually lead a small Bible study upstairs, and we got the, I got the opportunity to lead a Bible study through the first 12 chapters of the book of 1 Samuel. It's only about a third of that book. It's a, it's a real small passage, and yet it's a, a very interesting period in Israel's history. The, the book of 1 Samuel takes place after the time of Joshua. When Israel entered the land of Canaan, the, the land of the promise, it's after the time of the judges when Israel disobeyed God and failed to drive out the peoples of the lands around them. In fact, when, when Samuel's life begins, when the book of 1 Samuel opens, there is no central leadership in Israel. We're told that in those days the word of the Lord was rare. And there weren't many visions from God in those days. Even their priests, even the sons of Levi, who were supposed to be the, the spiritual leaders of the people, even their priests, Eli and his sons Hophni and Phinehas, were far from the Lord and committed sins that displeased God and didn't follow God's plans for the people. Basically, in these days when the book of 1 Samuel opens, Israel is a mess. 
Even after Samuel encounters the Lord and even after Samuel comes to leadership and starts to right the people of their wrongs, starts to turn the train back in the right direction, the people of Israel still can't help themselves. They come to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and demand that he appoint a king for the nation of Israel, just like all the other nations had around them. It's one big, long, messy story. And I encourage you, if you don't know it or if it's been a while, go back this week and read chapters 1 through 12. Go back and familiarize yourself with that time in Israel's life. But it ends with God telling Samuel that yes, he will give them a king. And he will even go as far as blessing Israel and their king if they follow God above all else, and they obey Him. In fact, the first 12 chapters of 1 Samuel ends with Samuel, the prophet, warning the people of what will happen if they don't follow God's plan for Israel and instead go back to chasing after their own ways, which has been the pattern for Israel for so long. I'll let you guess how that went for Israel. Truth is, you won't have to, to guess because that's where our story picks up today. If you've got your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 13. That's where we're going to start today. We're going to read the first 14 verses. Saul, the son of Kish, has been anointed by Samuel as the first king of Israel, the one who is the fulfillment of their request for a king. He's been chosen by God. He's been anointed by Samuel, and he has been confirmed by the nation of Israel as their first king. The sky is the limit. When we get to chapter 13, Saul has the opportunity to be blessed as Israel's king. If if only he follows God's plans for the nation of Israel. If only he walks in God's ways for the kingship. So let's start there today in 1 Samuel chapter 13. We'll read verses 1 through 14. May God bless the reading of his word today. It says, Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel for 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country at Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all of Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outposts, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash east of Beth-Avon. 
When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. Verse 13, Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Saul was chosen as the first king over Israel, the answer to Israel's demand for a king. And we're told at the beginning of this passage that Saul is going to reign as king in Israel for 42 years. And at the beginning of his kingship, Saul has the opportunity to set the stage to be the king who follows God with all of his heart, the king whose line will be established in all of Israel for all time. And Saul blows it. How? How does he mess up his chance as king of Israel? Samuel comes to Saul at Gilgal as Saul himself has just offered the burnt offerings before God. And Samuel says, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had... If Saul had been faithful, Samuel says, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now, Samuel says, now your kingdom will not endure. Why? Because you have not kept the Lord's command. We're going to take a deep look today into this story, this one moment out of this period of Israel's history And we're going to see what the problem here is. What's the issue at the heart of this story? What was Saul's struggle in doing what was right? I believe today that it comes down to how Saul answers one question. It's a question that's on the front of your bulletins. It's on your TV as well. Who's in charge here? You see, it wasn't God's plan for Israel to have a king. Not originally because God desired to be the one who led Israel. He desired to be their leader, to be the one that went ahead of them in the battle. But Israel demanded that Samuel give them a king. And even then, God promised his blessing. Even then, God said, if your king will follow me, 
I will bless the king. I will bless Israel if they would simply follow God's lead. If they would simply obey God and take their steps in the ways that God prescribed. But still, Saul had a question he had to answer. A question that all people before Saul and after Saul, that all people who seek to follow God with their lives must face. It's a question that you and I here today must answer regarding our own lives. Who is in charge here? I assure you today that this struggle is not just a struggle that's found only in the pages of Scripture. I assure you that this story, this struggle, this question does not apply simply to Israel in the Old Testament. This is a human condition. We wish to be in charge of our own lives. And many, many people in the church, I see it all the time, they go through the same cycles of sin and repentance and the same cycles over and over again in their lives because they can't let go of control. And here I I come into adulthood and I'm 30, you know, late 30s years old. And finally God is showing me, Will, you can't be in control of your life. And then you know what he does? He blesses me with being a parent. And then I get to see that this struggle starts early. This is born in us. This is something that is is in us in an early age. And I see it in my daughter. We have a four-year-old daughter. She, my, our daughter Kana is as sweet and kind as she can be, and yet there are moments where she really struggles with this issue of authority. She doesn't always want to go along with what mom and dad have said when they tell her to do something. She wants to be in charge. I see it in, in the eyes of my four-year-old. It's right there, this struggle. Even at four years old, she's got this stubborn streak that rears its head. I assume she gets that from her mother. (laughs) Oh, hey, I mean, I didn't see you back there. (laughs) Let me give you a couple examples. I remember one particular time we were out in town and, and we had gone somewhere and we were stopping by the store just to get something, you know, one of those, we need this, let's, let's run by. And, and so um, we dropped Emmy, my wife, at the door and Kana and I waited in the car while she went and got the one or two things that she needed at the store. When Emmy comes back into the car, the mood has changed And I simply looked at her and I just pointed back to the back seat like, look at your daughter. And she's back there with her arms crossed and she's got this just scowl on her face. And Amy says, what's the matter? To which Kana replies, dad wouldn't let me drive the car. (laughs) She's mad. She is upset. Another time, and this one might be embarrassing for her if she weren't in her class right now. Uh, Somehow, she and I were having a sweet moment, and somehow we got to talking about the issue of marriage. 
It is a sore subject in our house right now because she's four and she wants to marry her cousin Boone. <laughs> They're best friends. She loves Boone and she doesn't understand why she can't marry him. And so in, this, in the course of this conversation, I finally have to tell her, no, you cannot marry your cousin. And I'm telling you, I could tell this is when the conversation turned. She got mad at me, and she did that thing again where she crosses her arms, and I mean, she, she, looks, she looks mad. She said, why can't I marry Boone? And I said, because, sweetheart, Boone is your cousin, and he's family. You, you just, you can't marry your family. Well, she didn't accept it. She crossed her arms. She thought about it for a moment, and she looked at me and said, are you and mom not family? <laughs> Try explaining that one to a four-year-old. <laughs> you see, this is a condition. This is a struggle that is born in our hearts at an early age. We want to be the one to call the shots. We want to be the ones to decide what the rules are. We don't want, even as kids, even when we're not equipped to make decisions, we don't want somebody telling us, what to do, and it continues throughout all of our lives. You see, that is what we do when we come to Christ. When we are immersed in baptism in Christ, we are saying, I surrender control of my life to Jesus. He is in the driver's seat now. He is the one who leads my life. And yet, how many times, how many days, day after day after day, do we struggle with the temptation to pick back up the control of our lives, to be the ones who call the shots, to be the ones who are in charge, even though that is exactly what we said we were going to do when we gave our lives to Christ. And instead of submitting to his will, we want to be in charge. This really is the story of God and God's people. In fact, it's the first line in your notes if you're following along on the back of your bulletins that this question that Saul faces in Samuel chapter 13 is constant throughout Scripture. This is the story of Scripture that God has a perfect way, but man desires his own way. That God has the way that is right. God says, I know the plans I have for you. But we say, you know what? I've got a pretty good plan, my own. I, I've got pretty good ideas myself. This is throughout Scripture. Think back, we're talking about Israel now. We're talking about several generations into the life of Israel. But think about where it started. Think about Abraham. God says, I'm going to give you a nation. I'm going to give you a son. You're 75 years old. You're going to have a son. That son's going to have sons. And, and, and that's going to be a family. And that family is going to be bigger than the, the number of the stars in the sky and the number of, of grains of sand on the beach. This is God's plan. And Abraham says, you know what? I don't see that happening. And so instead, they, they find Hagar, the maidservant, and, and Abraham has a child with her instead because he's got a better idea. And this child, this, this is a consequence that, that stays with Abraham and the nation of Israel and, and plagues them to this day. 
because Abraham had a better way. Think about Moses when God said, here's the plan, Moses. I'm going to send you. I'm going to deliver my people. I'm going to do it. I'm going to bring them out of Israel, but I'm going to send you to Pharaoh to get the ball rolling and to, to tell him to let the people go. And Moses says, I, I, I can't do this. I, I'm not gifted to speak. I'm not a leader. I'm not a strong person. I'm out here in the desert watching sheep. I, I can't be that guy. And, and why is it? Because all of a sudden, Moses has taken it upon himself that he's going to have to do this thing, that he's in charge and on his own he can't do it. And that's not what God asked Moses to do. God said, I'm going to deliver the people out of Egypt. I just want to use you. Think about every other period of Israel's history. Think about the judges when God said, this is what you've got to do. You've got to drive the peoples out of the land and Israel can't do it. They have better ways. They adapt to the culture. They adapt to the nations around them and they face the consequences for 12 generations of judges in the new land. Think about the time of the kings when every king and every king after him, each one was evil, more, more evil than the one before him. Why? Because they, they took the mantle of leadership. They took charge. And they ruined the nation of Israel until eventually they're exiled for 70 years because of their rebellion. This is the story of the church. This is the story of our lives, is whether or not we're going to follow the leading of God the plans of God in the ways of God, or if we're going to take charge instead. And so today, this is the next line. This is today's truth in your bulletin. And you know what? I, I realize it's simple. I realize this is elementary, but, but church, we struggle with this every day. This is the truth. Today's truth is this. I am not in charge. If I am a follower of Christ, if I have given my life to Him in submission, if I have asked Him to save me from my sins, if I have given myself over to Him, then church, I am no longer in charge. And yet over and over again, we try to go back and pick it back up. And once again, be in control of our lives. This is fundamental in Scripture. Your life is not your own. The things around you do not belong to you. Look at what Scripture says. Psalms 24 verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. This world does not belong to us. This world that we have where we live is on loan to us from the creator of the universe. This is God's world that we live in. Look at James 1.17, what he says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. Church, understand today your blessings, the things you have did not come from you. They came from above. They came from your heavenly Father. We own, and when we understand this truth, it will change our lives, that we own nothing. It all belongs 
to God. It's all been given us by the gracious gift of God. Look at what James says in chapter 4, verse 14. He says, why you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life, James says? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Everything we have, our past, our present, the blessings we have today, the things that will come tomorrow and all of our tomorrows, it is not, it does not belong to me. It has come from the grace of God. And it is sin for me to take control and to take charge of it in my life. You see, that is what repentance is. We're going to talk today about the issue of repentance that is needed in our lives. And, and, and it, repentance, is, it's scriptural that, that it is essential to follow Christ with our lives, to repent of our sins. But sometimes we... we, we Sometimes we get it wrong. We think that repentance is just all the sins we've committed and turning them around to God and saying, you know, I, I stole from somebody this week or I cheated on my wife or I, I, I lied to somebody. And, and you know what? It looks like if we didn't do anything real big and bad this week that we're not in need of repentance. But the truth is that repentance is turning away from everything that would drive my life were I in charge. Repentance is turning away from me calling the shots and lining up everything that I do, everything that I say, every decision that I make, not with what I want and what I would do, but lining it up with the perfect will of God. You see, repentance is something that I need every day. Repentance is a prayer that I will pray every day to write my life in the direction that God is calling me. Because if not... I'm going to pick it up, and I'm going to be tempted to be in charge again. And so today, as we go back and look deeper into this story of 1 Samuel chapter 13, we're going to take a deeper look at this question, who is in charge here? And more than that, we're also going to get a pretty good look from the example of Saul as to what happens when we decide to take control of our lives. Let's start there. It's in your notes. Believing ourselves to be in charge, where does that lead us? If I believe that I am in charge of my situation, if I believe that I am in control of the circumstances that face me, that my life is mine and not God's. Well, the question is, where does that lead? And, and 1 Samuel chapter 13 is a really good case study to answer that question. So here's number one. Believing ourselves to be in charge leads to, number one, taking credit for our victories. It leads us to take credit for our victories. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 13 again, this time verses 3 and 4. It says, Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned 
to join Saul at Gilgal. Did you see it? Did you see what happens here? Jonathan attacks a Philistine outpost at Geba. Not Saul, Saul's son, Jonathan. And then the horns blast throughout Israel. The word is spread throughout Israel. And what is it? What's the message that goes out? Saul has attacked the Philistine outposts, and now the Israelites are obnoxious to the Philistines. Saul didn't go attack that outpost. Saul's not the one who inflicted the first wound in this battle. Saul is not the one who's done this, and yet Saul is the one who gets credit. Now, I know that Saul is king, and therefore he would be over all the decisions of Israel, but that's just the point. Saul's not supposed to be leading Israel. God is supposed to be leading Israel. It's a, it's a stark contrast from what happens just a couple chapters before. Look this time at 1 Samuel chapter 11. This is another battle, this time against the Ammonites. This is verses 11 through 13. It says, The next day Saul separated his men into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, they broke into the camp of the Ammonites and slaughtered them until the heat of the day. Those who were survived were scattered, and no two of them were left together. The people of Israel then turned to Samuel. Who was it that asked, shall Saul reign over us? Turn these men over to us so that we can put them to death. Look at what Saul says in verse 13. But Saul said, no one will be put to death today. Why? For this day the Lord has rescued Israel. You see the difference? This time, Saul actually did the fighting. This time, Saul actually led the men into battle. They defeated the Ammonites. There weren't two Ammonites left together in the whole land. And Saul says, don't worry about those guys. They, they want to kill the guys that, that didn't want Saul to be king. And Saul says, we're not going to do that. Why? Because today, God has handed us victory. Today, the Lord has won this battle. And yet two chapters later, we find King Saul proclaiming to all Israel what he has done when Jonathan attacked the Philistine outposts. Because at some point, Saul saw these, Saul saw, the eyes of Israel were looking at him. And Saul assumed leadership over God's people. God is the leader of God's people. And Saul has started to take credit. You know, we, we do that in our lives as well. At Christmas time, there's this debate in the church. There's this question, especially among parents, about the you know, big red suit guy. You know who I'm talking about? The one that lives up in North Pole. We're on the same page. And... You know, whether or not we say, you know, who, who do the presents, who gets credit for them? Where do the presents come from? Does it come from mom and dad? Does it come from that guy up north? You know what the more important question is? And we, we take sides on this issue and we talk about it every year. You know what the more important question is, parents? Where do your kids think everything they have has come from? Do they think it's come from you and how, how much money you've earned and how many good things you've done? Or do they know that all that they have is from God alone? Because if they think it comes from you, 
then they're going to set that pattern in their lives that they're going to do everything they can to have what you've had. And they're going to do everything they can to set their priorities in order so that they have what they need. And the truth is, we, we can't trust in what we can provide. We've provided nothing. God has given us everything. But if we're taking credit for what God alone has done, then chances are we've placed ourselves in the leadership position of our lives. Look at what happens next. Number two, if we believe that we ourselves are in charge, it leads to viewing our circumstances in terms of our own abilities or limitations. It leads, if, if I am not trusting God to be the leader of my life, if I have taken the mantle of leadership, the responsibility of being in charge, it leads to facing whatever circumstance I am against in terms of how strong and how able and how capable I am. Look at this in uh, 1 Samuel 13, this time verses 6 and 7. It says, when th this is after we're told that the Philistines have set up camp and we're told these details about the Philistine army and how many troops they had. It was like the sand on the seashore and how many chariots they had. Look what happens. Verse 6, when the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and their army was hard-pressed, they hid in caves and thickets. They hid among the rocks and in pits and cisterns. Some Hebrews even got out of there altogether. They crossed the Jordan into the land of Gad and Gilead. They ran away from the battle. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. Why are they terrified? The Philistines are, are camping, the, the Philistines are getting ready to come in and, and, and assume battle against the Israelites. And the Israelites are scared to death because the Israelites have looked to Saul to save them out of the situation. And, and it becomes apparent very soon that Saul's not going to be able to pull them out of this situation. In fact, Saul may have made a mess of it already because already now the Philistines have turned against Israel. They're, they're obnoxious in the Philistines' eyes. And all of Israel, besides those who had assembled with Saul and Jonathan, what do the rest of them do? They hide among the rocks. They're hiding in the pits and cisterns out of fear. Why? Because they are, are viewing their circumstance in terms of what they can do to stop it. And church, some of you are in the middle of that right now. Some of you are facing big circumstances, and I know that it weighs upon you. Some of you are facing cancer diagnosis. Some of you are facing sickness. Some of you are facing loss of jobs. Some of you are facing the recent loss of a loved one, of a spouse. Uh, and, and, and you're viewing it in terms of what you can do. And church, that's never going to lead to anything but anxiety and fear and despair. Because on my own, I can do nothing. But if I look at what God 
can do, then church, there is hope. Look at what Saul says, and this is actually in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel. This is actually when Samuel comes to him and says, God's chosen you to be the king. Look at what Saul says. Saul answered, but I, am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe in all of Israel? And is not my tribe the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you, Samuel, say such a thing to me? What is it that's gotten into his head? It's insecurity. Where, it's fear. Where does it come from? It comes from looking at ourselves and what we're able to do instead of looking at what God wants to do in our lives. Saul is, is told that he's going to be the king of Israel and, and all his focus goes on his own limitations, his own abilities. He can't lead a nation it causes them to think that God's made the wrong choice here because he's looking at what he can do and not at what God can do. And church, if you're in the middle of a, that circumstance right now, turn your eyes to God because nothing is impossible with God. But it is with me. I can't, I can't fight those battles on my own. I don't have the strength, I don't have the wisdom, I don't have the, the, the brain power to do what, what faces me. But God didn't intend for me to be in charge. When I think of this conundrum, when I think of this problem, I, I, my mind goes back to the book of Numbers. The Israelites are in the desert in Numbers chapter 13. They haven't yet entered the promised land, and God is about to show them what He's promised them. He's about to lead them into Canaan and show them what is going to be theirs. They send a group of 12 guys. They send a search party to, to basically scout out the land and see what's going to be yours in a short amount of time. But look at what happens. Numbers 13 verses 31 through 33. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people there we saw were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. You know what happens in the story? Israel wanders in the desert for 40 years because they didn't accept the promise of the land of Canaan. Why? Because they stopped looking at God, and they started looking inward. They started looking to their own abilities. They started looking to their own limitations. They started looking as to whether or not the, the guys that they had assembled had enough strength to accomplish this task that God had set before them. But the truth was, God never intended for them to accomplish this task. Church, God intends to go ahead of us. God attempts, intends to fight our battles, but He won't do it if you're in charge. God has the power. I tell you today, I proclaim to you today, God has the, the power to defeat whatever you face. And you do not possess that power.
our eyes must be turned to God. And so if we look at the circumstance and we look at only our limitations, then the truth is we've probably taken charge of our lives. We've probably picked up this mantle of leadership and it's caused us to see only what we can't do. But where does it lead next? What comes after that? Number three, believing ourselves to be in charge leads to taking matters into our own hands. Look at 1 Samuel 13, this time verses 8 through 12. He, Saul, waited seven days, the time set by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. And so he said, bring me the burnt offerings and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrived, and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. And Samuel, Saul, Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you did not come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. See, the truth is, this seems like a good idea. This seems like reasonable logic, right? He makes a pretty good case to Samuel. You weren't here. You didn't come in the time that you said you would come. The Philistines are knocking at our door. They are bigger and stronger than we are. And I hadn't sought the Lord's favor yet. We're about to go into battle and I don't know what's going on, right? I haven't sought what God wants me to do. The problem with that is Saul assumes a role that was never his to begin with. Saul's not a priest. Saul's not from the tribe of Levi. Saul is not one of the people that God had appointed to offer sacrifices and offerings to God. In fact, Samuel comes on the seventh day. Samuel comes right after Saul has made this burnt offering. The smoke is still in the air. And here comes the guy that was supposed to offer the offering before the Lord. Because Saul had taken his eyes on off of God's ways because he had better ideas. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 3. This is earlier in the book, and this is what I'm talking about when I talk about this terrible state that Israel is in. Verse 3 of uh, 1 Samuel 4 says, When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? So you know what we'll do? We got beaten by the Philistines, so let's decide what to do. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us and save us from the hands of our enemies. Truth is, that sounds like a good idea, right? It sounds like if we couldn't do it on our own, let's send God. Let's, let's send the Ark of the Covenant, the box of God's presence. Let's send it into battle before us. Then, then, then God would be fighting the battle, right? Except this is not in any way how God prescribed it. God was the one who decided who carries the Ark and when the Ark is used. God is the one who determined where His presence would be. In that moment, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of Eli go with the ark into battle, and that day they die, as does their father 
Eli. And the Ark of the Covenant, the presence of God, is captured in that battle, and it spends seven months in Philistine territory. Even when it comes back into the land of Israel, it spends 20 years on a shelf in someone's home because nobody knows what to do with it because they haven't asked God to lead them. They've taken matters into their own hands. They decided that they had a better idea. And church, we can never live lives that please God if we're calling the shots. And sometimes in the church, we do it under the guise of what God wants. Under the guise of this is what I'm doing to, to, to follow God. And yet if God's not in it, then you're not following him. You're, you're calling your own shots. You're leading the way and you're setting a path to destruction. Look at 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 12. This is the previous chapter where Samuel is charging the Israelites. He is, is challenging them to do what is right. He says, but when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. But they looked at their circumstance and they saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, and he was a terrible king and he was coming straight for the Israelites. And they decided, you know what? We've got an idea. Give us a king. But the Lord, Samuel says, the Lord is your king. They said, no, we don't want it. We want you to appoint us a king like all the other nations have. Because when we're calling the shots... When we're in charge and the deck becomes stacked against us and our circumstance is too big for us, if we, can, if we continue to hold on to leadership, eventually we're going to take matters into our own hands. We're going to make decisions that God does not desire for us to make. And finally, where does that lead? Last one, number four. Believing ourselves to be in charge, ultimately it leads to our inability to be used by God. Taking the mantle of leadership in my life will eventually lead me down a road that leads to God's not using me anymore. And church, that's not a place I want to be in. Look at verses 13 and 14 of 1 Samuel 13. You have done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people. Why? Because you have not obeyed the Lord's command. Church calling your own shots, leading your own way, being in charge of your life will lead to a life that God won't use. If we've given ourselves to Christ, if we have turned our lives over to Jesus Christ, then He is the one who will lead the way. And if that becomes a pattern that eventually turns toward rebellion from God, then God will no longer use us. 
Look at what happens eventually this time in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 10 and 11. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and he has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all night. Why? Because God is now grieved of the decision that he made. God has eventually rejects Saul as king of the people of Israel. And yet, Saul reigned in Israel for 42 years. You know what that means? That means for 42 years, the majority of them, God's people were under leadership of a man who didn't follow God. God's people were being led by someone who had rejected God and was rejected by God for his disobedience. And it plunges Israel further away into darkness, further away from God's plan for his people. Look at what Samuel says in chapter 12. This is where he's giving the charge to the people. He says, now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Samuel's saying, he did what you asked. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord, and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. And down in the end of that chapter in verses 24 through 25, Samuel says this, be sure to, to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet, if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Where does it lead when I hold on to control of my life? Where does it take me when I am in charge of my life? We've already seen it so far. It starts with taking credit for things that are God's alone. It will lead to the ability for us only to see our circumstances in view of what we can do, in view of our weaknesses. We're up against circumstances that we can't face because all of a sudden we're not looking to God's leadership. It takes us into taking matters into our own hands where we're making decisions that are not the decisions God's leading us to. It leads to a life that is not being used by God. God will not use someone that does not yield his life to God. And if you want to add a fifth step, it leads to death. Ultimately, it leads to death. See, that's what sin is. Sin equals death. The wages of sin is death. And that is what sin is. Sin is the inability for me to drop control of my life and let God lead. Sin is the selfishness of my heart that I must be on the throne where God alone can sit. Sin is me deciding after I've given my life to Christ that I am no longer going to follow His will and His ways and His plans and doing it myself. And sin, church, leads to death. 
And so as we close today, I'm going to leave you with the question. It's, this is for you. I can't answer this for you. Your wife or husband can't answer this for you. You can't answer this question for your neighbor. And so as we come to a close today, I'm asking you to look, to search your heart, to take a look at your life and ask this question. It's the last line in your notes. Who is in charge of my life? Who is in charge of my life? And I don't mean theoretically. I don't mean what you tell people when you come to church on Sunday morning. I mean Monday and Tuesday and Thursday and Friday. Who is leading your life? Who is calling the shots? I'm going to ask Chad and the band to come out for the time of invitation. And as they do, I charge you with this question. Church, is there any area in your life big or small, is there any area in your life which you have not totally yielded to God's control? Is there any area, big or small, in your life that has not been given over completely to God's control? You see, this isn't just about saying that we believe in God. This isn't just about saying that we trust God to be in control of our lives. This is whether or not we are day in and day out giving Him, giving Him control, giving Him leadership of our lives. And so think about the aspects of your life. Think about your workplace. Does God lead you just on Sunday mornings at church or is God leading you and directing you in work? Is the person that your coworkers see a person that is being led, not by what they desire to do, but by, by God in their lives? Because guess what, church? That's the person God can use in, the, in your workplace. What about your family? Parents, what about your kids? What about your marriage? I don't, I don't have the ability, I don't have the wisdom to, to live a godly marriage, to model a godly marriage for my kids. I don't have the wisdom to lead kids in this world that we live in today where everything's trying to pull them in different directions, but God does. My kids are only safe with me if God's leading their lives. What about your relationships? Church, what about, what about your finances? Is that, is that one area where, you know, God gets everything else, but, I, but I, you know, really I'm in charge of the checkbook? Or have you completely yielded everything that your family owns, understanding that you own nothing, but everything you have is a gift from God? Or do you still hold that part of your life back? What is it, church, that you have the tendency, that you have that temptation to go back and pick up control? What area do you need today to give back to the one who gave it to you in the first place? Because today, church, we have a time of invitation. And for those that have never given their lives to Christ, let me tell you today, if you've never submitted to his lordship, then you're still running the show. 
And I encourage you to come and lay lay down your life at the feet of the one who gave you your life. But today, if you're like me and you're in Christ and you've given your life to Christ, then today I'm asking you, does he still have it? Does he still have control of your life? Or is there an area in which your life needs to be yielded into repentance? Is there an area in which your life needs to be once again directed back into the ways of God, directed back into the ways of righteousness and set on his path? Because today, church, if that's the case, then now is the time. Now is the time to give back control of our lives to the one who gave us our lives. Terry and Scott are going to come forward for a time of invitation. If you need to make that decision today, don't wait. Don't keep leading your life. Allow God to be in charge. Let's stand and let's sing.